As Galen prayed, I pray that it is well with your soul this morning. I pray that as you look upon the face of Jesus, you understand that it is only through him that our souls can truly find rest and truly we say it is well. As I mentioned before, this is going to be our first sermon back in Hebrews as we are journeying through the book of Hebrews. And what a blessing it's been to go through this book. And we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4 today. And as I started to read this, and as my wife was reading it a couple weeks ago, I asked her, I said, what did you kind of get as a theme there? And she said, well, rest. And I said, okay, good. We're on the same page. Uh, rest is truly uh, what we are talking about today. And the title of our message is called The Rest That We Seek. And I don't know about you guys, but for me, rest is something that doesn't come very easy to myself as a dad of a three-year-old and a crazy one-year-old. But when I get the opportunity to rest, I try to take advantage of it. And why do I rest? Why do we need rest? Because our bodies, no matter how great of shape we are in, are fragile things. The wear and tear of a normal day creates exhaustion within our bodies, and therefore it is rest that we need to re-energize and recover from the times that we have been going through. And so today I want us to have that word rest in mind because it is, not, because it is a central theme of our passage today, but it's not necessarily talking about a physical rest. I want us to be understand that and clearly understand that as morning. so I'll repeat it again. We are not talking about physical rest this morning. Did everybody get, catch me on that? We are not talking about physical rest this morning. For if we were talking about physical rest, we wouldn't find out that physical rest would mean, for me yesterday, I took a nap. When I woke up from that nap, I still felt tired. Anybody ever experienced that? So our bodies can never truly find rest, but our souls can. And that is what we are talking about today. Our spiritual bodies, we become wore out. We become exhausted. They become, as the call to worship passage says this morning, weak and heavy laden. So we need rest for our souls. But where does that rest come from? It doesn't come from taking a nap. It doesn't come from taking off work. It doesn't come from us laying on our comfiest recliner, but in our message today, we will look about how our rest comes through the Son, through Jesus Christ. So let's dive into Hebrews chapter 4. I'll be starting at verse 1 and be reading through verse 13. It says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you shall seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of a seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works, and again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
For if Joshua had given him rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for how it guides us. And Lord, as the passage said, Father God, how it is active, it is living, it pierces our hearts. God, that's what I pray this morning, that our hearts be pierced with what you have for us here in your word. Lord, just empty me of myself, fill me with your spirit, Father God, to deliver this message, not from me, but from you. And we just ask all these things in your son's holy name. Amen. Well, it has been several months since the last time we dove into Hebrews. And of course, after taking that big, long break, Kevin leaves us off at verse 1 in chapter 4 that says, therefore, so therefore we have to go back and remember what we talked about months ago. All right? So we're going to quickly do that this morning. If you remember back, we are talking about how in the book of Hebrews, the greater theme here is Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. We have learned that Jesus is greater than the angels. We have read that Jesus is greater than Moses. And today we will see that Jesus is greater than others as we progress through this book. But today we learn that Jesus is greater than the Sabbath. Jesus is greater than Joshua, who we're currently studying during Sunday school right now, which is really cool how that planned out. And for those of you that think we're so good and organized, we did not plan that once again. All right, it just happened to fall into that. But as we see this, I want us to understand that Jesus is greater, therefore our rest comes in him. And that is what we're going to study here today. So let's go ahead and dive into the text. I broke this down into three parts, and the first one is missing the rest, then we will talk about finding the rest, and then we will close with keeping that rest. All right, so Verses 1 through 6, we're going to talk about missing the rest. But it says, therefore, is how we start chapter 4 off. So we must look back on the previous section that we are talking about. What is the writer of Hebrews mentioning and therefore is a direct result of what we're about to talk about today? Remember, when we see that word, therefore, we have to look back. Because it means because of this, now this must happen. So if you look at the previous section of Hebrews, chapter 3, verses 7 to 16, it's referring to the people of Israel. Over the last several weeks in Sunday school, we have been looking at the people of Israel. And for those of you that are in Chad and I's Sunday school class, we are not necessarily nice to the people of Israel when we talk about them. They're not very great people. But I always make sure to preface it by this, we are no different than what the people of Israel were. We are disobedient. We are unruly people. We complain. We doubt. We lack faith. In all of what God has done, is doing, and was doing, we are just like them. But that's, what the, pla- that's the place that the people of Israel are in. Because of their unbelief, because of their unbelief, and because of their disobedience, because of their lack of faith, we see in verse 18 of chapter 3, it says this, And to whom did he, God, swear that they would not enter rest, but to those who were disobedient? 
In verse 19, so we see that we were unable to enter into that rest because of unbelief. So he's talking about the unbelief, the disobedience, the lack of faith that the people of Israel had. Therefore, they will not enter into the rest that God had provided. So the therefore at the beginning is a warning for us today. Because it says in verse 1 there of chapter 4, or verse 2, the promise of rest that was given to the Israelites at that time is still the promise of rest that is given to us today. It's the same gospel, it's the same promise, it's the same message. The rest that was provided for them is the same rest that we have available to us today. So what is the author of Hebrews trying to prove to us here? What is he trying to tell us here? He's telling us that we must be careful. We must be careful. Why? Why must we be careful? Because just as the Israelites, who are no different than you and I, we can miss out on this rest. Think back to all the wondrous miracles that God did for the people of Israel. Think about this. All of this in order to save them. He parted the Red Sea. He brought manna down from heaven. He calmed the Jordan River. He broke down the walls of Jericho. And as we continue to read into that story, we are going to see God continually provide and do things for them. And even with all of these things that he did for them, there were still those who did not believe and trust in him. I find it funny, oftentimes people always say, well, if I was the disciples and I could have seen Jesus perform these miracles or I could have sat under Jesus' actual teaching or if we, would have, if we could just see God act in mysterious and wonderful ways, then and then we will believe. That's not the case. The Bible is very clear that there are many individuals, many people that saw the miracles of God, saw the miracles of Jesus, saw the miracles of the Holy Spirit, and yet they still did not believe. Because believing is not just an act of seeing a miracle, but believing is truly a heart change and a true surrenderance over to the one who is performing that miracle. Salvation does not come in the miracle alone, but it comes in the provider of the miracle. So while the Israelites were thankful for the miracles that God was providing them and the ways that he was providing uh, promises and keeping his promises and giving them ways of escape, they did not trust in the one that was providing them and leading them. It's important that we look at this. In Al Mohler's Christ-centered exposition on Hebrews, he states that there are a couple of things we learn from these two verses. And that is that simply hearing the message of the gospel is insufficient for salvation. So just because you have sat in church your entire life and heard the gospel spoke to you does not necessarily mean that you have believed it. Many have heard the message of the gospel, and yet their hearts have been hardened to it. So hearing is not sufficient for salvation. And two, the only appropriate response to the gospel is faith. Their response, their response of God's promises, their response of disobedience and not putting their faith in him brought ultimately wandering for them in the desert for 40 years and ultimately brought death amongst their people. The third thing we see out of this verse is faith is something much more than just 
intellectually apprehending the gospel. So just because you understand that Christ died on the cross for you, just because you understand that your sins were paid for then, does not mean that you have entered into that rest. Mere intellectual understanding of the gospel does not bring salvation. What does it talk about? Some of the best theologians, the best theologians are demons. They understand the Bible inside and out. What's the difference? They don't have faith. They don't put their faith in it. They don't trust in it. And the fourth thing, the message of salvation was no different for those in the Old Testament as it was in the New Testament. One thing that I love about Answers in Genesis, one thing I love about the Christ-centered commentaries that Nate and I always talk about on our podcast is that we see Christ from Genesis all the way to Revelation. The gospel has not changed. If you even look at the sacrificial system of the Old Testament people, it points towards Christ. As we're going to talk today about the Sabbath and the Sabbath that was established by God in that time, it was not just merely something for them to do, but the Sabbath was pointing forward to Christ. So the gospel of Christ has not changed from the Old to the New Testament. It both required faith. We talk about Abraham, and it says he was justified by his what? faith. So the gospel message is no different from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It always requires faith. And brothers and sisters, as I mentioned before, we are no different than the Israelites when it comes to our lack of understanding and resting in the gospel. There is a danger of disbelief that exists in our lives. We ourselves can doubt. We ourselves cannot put our trust into God. Everything that they saw and experienced still did not convince them. And that it still did not convince them. It still did not convince them that God was worth resting in. Why? Because faith is not obtained by mere intellect, but by full surrenderance. By full surrenderance. So if you come this morning and you know the Bible stories, you know the story of Jesus on the cross. You know all these things. Knowledge does not gain you access into the kingdom of God. It does not gain you access to this rest that we talk about. So what brings forth this unbelief in our life, this disbelief? Well, the same factors as the Israelites. They're no different than us. So their factors that brought disbelief in their life are the same factors that caused disbelief in our own. They thought that their way was better they became impatient. They began listening to false teachers. They began to experience trials. And ultimately, they thought what the world had to offer was better than what God had to offer. Can you imagine the Israelites in captivity in Egypt, in the midst of them wandering in the desert, they come to the, they come to the realization that maybe they would have been better off just staying in Egypt. It was better off for them to be there. How often times in our life do we think, man, it was better off prior to my life of, of coming to church? It looks like that that world is so much more enjoyable. It's so much more satisfying. I can do what I want. I can, I can move in whatever way I want. I can say what I want. It looks way more enjoyable. I'm telling you what, brothers and sisters, there's no satisfaction in that world. There's no satisfaction in there. You will constantly live a life, as I described this morning, you will constantly live a life of running on a treadmill. All you'll be doing is moving your feet but going nowhere. You're constantly going to be looking for that next thing to bring satisfaction, to bring that rest. 
You try to find it in a spouse. You try to find it in a job. You try to find it in drugs. You try to find it in alcohol. You try to find it in pornography. You try to find it in whatever it may be. What that satisfaction does is all it does is it provides temporary happiness. And what happens is that happiness goes away and then you need something else to fulfill it. But I'm here to tell you today that the rest of God is what brings true satisfaction into your life. And if we do not find that rest in God and miss out on that rest in God because we don't trust him, we don't believe him, we don't want to follow him, we will miss out on that rest, just as the Israelites did. That's the warning that the writer in Hebrews gives us right here. It's a warning. I tell people all the time, why do we always think that we just have to learn from our own mistakes? Why don't we learn from others' people's mistakes as well? The Israelites are a, pure, are, are, are a prime example of what disbelief and unfaithfulness have in our life. It brings forth death and, and, and wandering, and it brings forth just a life of no satisfaction whatsoever. So that's the warning of missing that rest. So how do we find it? Josh, you talk about how we, we, we miss out on this rest, but how do we find it? I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss it. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're asking those questions because this chapter begins with a warning of how we can miss the rest, but we also see right here in chapter 4 of how we can find that rest. We see rest mentioned here in referring to God on the seventh day of creation. We see God mentioned here in the seventh day of creation. We all know the story of creation. We see it right there in verse 4 or verse 5. It talks about, it says, and God rested on the seventh day from his works. You go farther down there. And so, so there then remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What are we talking about there, Josh? What is this rest talking about? Well, here's why believe we're trying to, the author is trying to relay to us here. In Genesis 2, 1 to 3, where it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and the, all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. It is from here in this particular passage that we get our idea of the Sabbath, which is often referred to as the day of rest. The day of rest. Well, why is this mentioned as the day of rest? Well, because listen to this. This was, for me, I was talking to Sean Otto a couple weeks ago when he was down here, and he, and he made me feel a lot better. He said he was reading some verse the other day, and he was like, i just never seen it like that before. And I told other people, and they're like, well, yeah, duh, Sean. I think for some of us, it gets to simple points in our lives where we're like, why did I never get this before? Why did I never understand this before? But for me, it was so reassuring to hear this this week. So let's talk about how we find true rest in referring to this uh, rest that God found. It said, in God's resting on the seventh day, we are not referring to the fact that God was tired. I hope that you don't think that. That man, God created all this stuff, he had to be tired. Let me tell you this, if God gets tired, he's not worth worshiping. I'll tell you that. God does not get tired. But why did God rest on the seventh day? He rested because his work was complete. There was nothing more to do. He rested because his work was complete. He looked at creation, and what did he say about his creation? 
it was very good. Right? He looked at it and said, it was very good. So then God used the seventh day of rest in creation as an example for us to adhere to the Sabbath day and keep it holy as we find in the Ten Commandments. He made it the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments given to the Israelites. And this was that they were to take one day out of their work week to rest. They were to take one day out of their work week to rest. Why do we stop there? The Sabbath is meant for so much more than just taking a day off work. When he tells us that we are to have a day of rest, he is meaning way more than to take a day off of working. This was more than a commandment, but this was a foreshadowing of the permanent Sabbath rest that was to come in the Messiah. That's what the Sabbath is referring to. It was a foreshadowing. Remember what we talked about before, how Christ was in Genesis all the way through Revelation. So even the Sabbath was used as a foreshadowing of a more permanent rest that was to come in Jesus. The Israelites at this time had a mentality of laboring, laboring until they could make themselves acceptable to God. But ultimately, what they found in the law was that they were incapable of fulfilling it, right? The purpose of the law was to show that they needed someone more than themselves to fulfill the law that God had given them. It's the same tactic that Ray Comfort uses whenever he talks about uh, ministering to people and sharing the gospel with them. What he does is he goes through the Ten Commandments. Have you lied? Have you stealed? Have you committed adultery? Have you committed idolatry? Have you, have you, have, oh, you do all these different things in the Ten Commandments? And what we see is that if we would test ourselves in those Ten Commandments, no one in here would be able to accurately attain every single one of them. So what that does is that points us to something that we need in order to fulfill those commandments from God. To fulfill the law, we need something. But the Israelites, what they had at that point was the sacrificial system. So what they did when they realized that they could not fulfill the law, they had to make sacrifice for their sins. It was a work, right? It was a sacrificial system. They had to kill the, the, a lamb, a sparrow, a calf, whatever it may be, and bring it to the altar. It was a work that they had to do. So they were laboring in their tasks to bring themselves to be acceptable before God. They could not hold to all the do's and the don'ts of the law. But just as they offered sacrifices over and over and over again, they were mere temporary fixes. They needed something more complete. They needed something more uh, permanent in order to truly enter into a state of rest. So Christ, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, in his perfect sinless state, went to the cross and died for their sins, for your sins, for my sins. And why? Why? So that the work of, of atonement would be complete forever. So that the work of atonement would be complete forever. I see that maybe you're still trying to process this, but for me, when I was studying this this week, I was like, whoa! This is awesome! 
to understand that the work of trying to atone and gain favor with God became so laborious, became such an impossible task. Imagining trying to do an impossible task over and over and over and over. Of course, we're going to find ourselves weary. We're going to find ourselves heavy laden. We're going to find ourselves tired and wore out. But Christ came and died that sin for us so that we might find rest in the work of atonement. So in Christ, we find the rest that the Bible talks about. When we make the Sabbath all about physical resting of our bodies and from our, for our bodies and of our labor, we're missing out on what the point of the Sabbath was all about. And that's rest for our souls. Rest for our souls. As I mentioned before, we can never get enough physical rest for our bodies. Never. That's why God invented coffee. I told somebody this past week, I've only disagreed with Kevin one time up here, and that was last week when he said we don't need coffee. We'll have a discussion about that. But we can never truly find enough rest for our bodies. But spiritual rest is what we can truly find completeness in. It says in Hebrews 10, 12, but when Christ had offered for all time, all time, a single sacrifice for the sins, he sat down. Once he did the work on the cross, it says he sat down at the right-hand throne of God. Why? Well, think about it. Carrying that cross, dying that death, all the beatings, all the other things. He was tired, right? No, that's not what it's talking about. When he sat down at the right-hand throne of God, he sat down. Why? Because what he said on the cross was true. It was finished. It was done. It's the same rest that, God, that Christ took on the right-hand throne of God that God took on the very first Sabbath on when he got done with creation. He looked at his creation. He said, it is complete. It's finished. There's no more to do. It's the same rest that Christ took when he sat down at the right-hand throne of God. He sat down and thought, there's no more to do. Sin has been paid for. It is atoned for. It's done. It's complete. So my question is, is why do we, why do we keep trying to labor and work for God's love? We make ourselves no different than the Pharisees or the Israelites by trying to put fences around these different things and trying to make sure that we wear the right clothes, we say the right things, we come to church, we don't work on Sundays. All these different things that we try to do in order to gain favor with God and all he's asking you to do is surrender and rest in the rest that he's given us and the cross. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He took care of your biggest problem on the cross. And how should you respond? Not by trying to continue that work, but by resting in it. By resting in it. By trusting Him with your eternity. Trusting Him with your salvation. We don't have to work towards salvation any longer. He has provided us a way. We rest from our works and enter God's rest when we fully trust in Christ. 
We no longer have to live our lives trying to prove our righteousness because we've talked about what our righteousness looks in the eyes of God. It looks like dirty rags. But what we do instead, we rest from our labors because Christ has proven that his righteousness is truly our righteousness. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is not morality. The gospel is not about being the best person that you can be. The gospel is not about external religion. It's not about holding to traditions. The gospel is not a seven-step program to a better life. The message of the gospel is Christ's accomplishment on our behalf so that we might rest from our works and trusting in his works. When we trust in Christ's work, that is, the, that is truly what he means by resting from our own. So how do we keep this rest? How do we keep this rest? Well, he closes with this. And if I'm going to be completely honest with you guys, whenever I hear about uh, this, when I hear these verses about how the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, I did not realize that this was in the context of what is being talked about. But I feel like it fits perfectly. In verse 11, he says, let us strive to enter that rest. We have to continue to pursue this because our natural state of flesh will continue to fight against us. God has taken care of the work of atonement for us, but we still have that sin nature in us that's going to keep fighting against us. It's going to continue. We're going to continue to be driven by our sins. We have to make sure that we truly rest in God and in resting in God, we find ourselves sinning less and less, and desire, those desires become less and less, so we're fighting against them. We're striving. Striving is used here, and that means to fight for in a struggle. So we're not completely let off the hook when we come to this. Let's get me right. Hey, let me, let, let's hear so this. This finding rest in God doesn't mean we just kick our feet up and let us go. What I'm saying is in the work of salvation, we let God do that, and now we are walking hand in hand with him in the process of sanctification ultimately leading to glorification. But he has taken part of the justification. Ephesians 6.12 says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. We fight against that constantly. And remember all the dangers that the Israelites fell into? They were all about God, and they trusted him through the exodus out of Egypt, but they quickly doubted him whenever things got hard. So how do we avoid that? How do we try to avoid that doubt? By striving in his word. It says the word of, the, of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit and the joints and the marrow. And guess what, guys? When we read about this, it's, it, it discerns our hearts. It discerns our thoughts. We read this and discuss this often, but what does it mean in regards to what we're talking about here? It means that if you want to keep this rest and not fall into disobedience, it is the Bible that can actively help you do that. The sharpness of the Bible is referring to the power it has to cut deep into our hearts. Michael Kruger in his book, Hebrews for You, says this. He says, it's like the word of God is energetic, powerful, and mighty. It doesn't just say things, it does things. It is busy working, changing, 
building, convicting, encouraging, exposing, rebuking, giving light and wisdom, carving out the path of our lives, and ultimately showing us the truth of God. Do you understand that that's what this does? This is not just a regular book. This is a living and active word. And if you've ever sat down and truly read it, you understand that. You understand that it's convicting. You understand that. One, one commentator I read talked about how the Bible is like the scalpel to the surgeon. It cuts to the deepest parts of our body to remove the nastiness that's inside. But nothing can pierce the skin like a scalpel as nothing can pierce our hearts like the word of God. But it works to remove the darkness within us. Why can't we do this on our own? Aren't we capable of seeing our sin and trying to change it? Well, sisters, let me tell you right now. I saw a thing the other day, and it said, "What sins? What sins do we? Uh, what sins do we accept the most? What sins do we accept the most in the church today?" And you know what this one guy's answer was? Our own. I thought he was going to say something like homosexuality or uh, divorce or whatever it may be, but no, his answer was spot on. What sins do we accept the most in the church today? It's our own. Why? Because we oftentimes are the last person to see our own sins. We are incapable of doing this. And what does God say here in verse, what does the writer of Hebrews say in verse 13? He says this, it says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let me, say, let me, let me put that into Josh's phrase here. He sees everything in your life. Everything. You can put on the prettiest face. You can put on the nicest face. You can act like you are the greatest person in the entire world. And everybody can think that everything in your life is so great and that you're the most awesome person in the world. But guess what? God sees right through it. He sees right through it. We are naked and exposed to him according to Hebrews. And when he sees that we are naked and exposed, he sees to the depths of our heart. He sees the nastiness that lies within it's not about the actions of which we do, but the motives in which we do them. And God sees those. He sees why you come to church. He sees why you, you serve in these areas. He sees why you do the things that you do. And that's what is important. David prayed this in Psalms 139, 23-24. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and try my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. That should be a prayer that we all pray daily. God, show me where I need to work. And how does he show us? Through his word. Through his word. Exposes the hearts. If we are not in the word, it is not the ultimate authority in our lives. If that's not the ultimate authority in our lives, then who is or what is? Well, then that becomes ourselves. Ourselves and understanding ourselves, we are incapable of doing good works. We are capable of righteousness on our own. So therefore, we fail. Therefore, we miss out on the rest that God has promised for us. God gives us his words, his word, so that we do not end up like the Israelites did. That's the advantage that we have. We have God's word. We have God's word. The Bible is our guide to trusting God and truly finding satisfaction in him. If we do not open this book, brothers and sisters, we will fall into the trap of unbelief. We will fall into the world's satisfaction things that they offer. 
But when we truly dive into this word, we truly allow God's scalpel to pierce our hearts, to open up, to expose the wickedness that lies within. But he just doesn't expose those wickedness and let it go. No, he, he helps us correct that and grow in that. So in closing, I just want to ask a question. And remember, I'm not talking about physical. I'm talking spiritually. How many of us, of us in this room today are tired? How many of us in here today have constantly been trying to work to be good enough? Have constantly been trying to find purpose, trying to find satisfaction. Your life just seems like it has no meaning. It has no purpose. You feel like you're just constantly just wallowing in this, this awful sin that you just can't get yourself out of. How many of us are tired this morning? I think most of us can find ourselves there at times. We can find ourselves heavy laden and burdened by the weight of our sin but the Christian life was not meant to be one of weariness and drudgery. It wasn't meant to be that. It is meant to be a life full of joy, a life full of peace, a life full of satisfaction that can only be found in Christ. Why? Because he's the one that went to the cross. He's the one that died for your sins. He paid the price that you were meant to pay so that you no longer had to work and strive to be what he was. Because you can't accomplish that outside the saving power of Christ. When Christ stood on that cross and he said, it is finished, it rings as true then as it does today that he truly has done the work for you. All he asks us to do is put our faith in him. Do you trust him? And when you, when you do, when you do, you truly find rest. You truly find rest. And I don't know if you've been going through this for years, if you've been going through this for months, or you've been going through this for just a couple days here, but let me tell you what it talks about in here. Where it uses the word today. Let me tell you right now, brothers and sisters, there's no better time than today to find that rest that is available to you in Christ. There's no better time than today. And what an opportunity we have to remember that rest than the time that we get to partake in communion when it is all about that rest. As we partake in the, the eating of the bread and the drinking of the juice, we truly acknowledge the atoning work that was done for us on that cross, and when we come forward this morning, it is not merely a tradition or just act that we do, but it is truly understanding the rest that is available for us because of the work of Christ on the cross. So this morning, I want to give you some time. I want to give you some time. If you are tired... If you're weary, if you are heavy laden, today is the day you can find rest. Go to him and pray. The time is yours.
Just keep your head bowed. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward. So elders, you guys can come forward at this time, but let's just pray. God, we thank you, God, that you have offered us this opportunity to find rest. God, I, th- I thank you, Father, Lord, that, God, that we no longer have to live this life constantly working ourselves towards an impossible task. But, Father God, you sent your Son to do that for us. Father, God, Father, for those of us in here today that have that mindset, Father God, that they've been trying to be the best that they can be, They've been trying to do the right things just to try to find favor in you. God, I pray today you give them that rest. God, I pray today, Lord, that they would just truly rest in the finished work of your son. And Father, as we step forward here this morning and partake in communion, God, what an example, what a reminder for us of that rest that was given. God, let us come forward with the mindset today of, God, I want to enter into that rest. I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss it. And Father, as we enter into that rest, would we truly find the rest that our souls have been looking for? Father, let's just have that mindset of remembrance this morning as we come forward. And we thank you, and we love you, and we ask all these things in your son's holy name. Amen.